so cool to see uh, just all these kids uh, singing and worshiping. And, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of surreal because I now have a four-month-old at home. And so that'll be um, one of my kids up here soon. So uh, I remember growing up in the church and doing these things. My dad was a pastor, having to do these things. And my dad was a pastor. And so... Um, so now my son's going to have to do these things too, and a few, uh, but, but I'll be the one, uh, you know, proud of him on stage. So uh, we're, we're so thankful that you're here this morning uh, with us. Uh, we're we're t- in a series on expectations, and uh, the reality is that, that God meets us in the unexpected. That's kind of the theme of, of, of these next few weeks, and, um, and one of the most beautiful unexpected things that God meets us in is, is our kids uh, and young ones. Uh, let the little children come to me. That's the heart of, of God. And so we're thankful to be able to share uh, that time with him this morning. It is Christmas season. And uh, so with that comes the common experience of, of getting a gift that you maybe didn't expect. And so I'm going to just set a dilemma out here. And you know, maybe it might be controversial for some of you, but, but two things, I'll kind of list them and then I'll have you guys raise your hand for them afterwards. Um, would you rather get something... Um, that you expect, something you put on your Christmas list, maybe your top, like, or would you rather receive a thoughtful gift that you didn't expect, all right? So a gift that you expected on your list or a thoughtful gift that is unexpected. Uh, different personalities are going to gravitate. So first one, uh, wh- how many of you would rather get a gift that you expected that was on your list, like this is what I really want? Okay, a few. How many of you guys would rather receive a thoughtful it's not like a terrible gift, but a thoughtful gift that is unexpected. Raise your hand. Wow, you guys are all very much more holy than I am because I just, honestly, I was, like, I was not expecting to be that drastic. I, I really, you can talk to my wife. This is a, 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 a part of my, you know, sanctification, I guess. But I, if I don't get what's on my list, I, I just have a hard time with that. I need to struggle with gratitude. Anyway, confession, confession time with Samuel this morning. Um, but sometimes what, getting what we don't expect can be a joy. Uh, and, and sometimes it can actually be a challenge. And we're going to encounter uh, this morning a story of a man who, who got what he expected in an unexpected way. And it was incredibly challenging. And we're going to be spending time with him this morning. But I want us to kind of sit with a question uh, throughout this morning uh, uh, that I want you to just you know, write down, think about what if the thing we expect often comes in the way that we don't want? What if the thing that we expect often comes in a way that we don't want? That we're getting what we want in the way that we don't want. Truth is, that's how God tends to work all throughout Scripture. He comes in ways that we don't expect, giving us uh, the desires of our heart and the desires of his heart. And we're going to see that in Zechariah this morning. So open with me, Luke 1, we're going to be there. Uh, The majority of our time this morning is going to be in one chapter, uh, the opening chapter of Luke. Spending time with this guy named Zechariah. And so real quick though, for those of you who missed last week, I encourage you to listen back. We really laid a groundwork for this five-week series through Advent of, of Christmas expectation, of waiting, of, of, of longing for, the, for Messiah Jesus, for King Jesus uh, to arrive. And, and we started by looking at the, the, the nation of Israel, the, the Jewish people and their expectation. Hundreds of years of waiting and waiting and waiting and being oppressed by different nations. And finally, we find them in this moment oppressed by the Romans, the Roman Empire. And they're still waiting for God to break in 
And that's where we meet this guy named Zechariah. So I'm going to pick up in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And so we meet this couple, specifically this man named Zechariah, and he, he's, he's a priest. And, and I want to kind of name, he, he's, an, he's an ordinary priest. He's not high priest. He's nothing special. He's just doing his duty. And he gets selected for uh, probably what would have been a, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. You know, he gets to light the incense candle in the temple. And so, so he, he's excited about this. But we learn a few other things that him and his wife, Elizabeth, are, are unable to have children. And they're old, so it's past the time of even being able to have children. And then he has this encounter, this encounter in the midst of his ordinary faithfulness, of just living his life. And an angel shows up. Imagine you're at work. Your boss calls you. Hey, I've got a project for you, a special project. Been doing a pretty decent job. And, uh, and I want you to go do it. And you, you're like, yeah, this is exciting. I'm going to go do it. And so you will go and do it. And then you, there's an unexpected thing that happens. That there's a, there's a messenger of the Lord at work. Something you've been doing your entire life, for decades maybe, for those of you of that age. This is what happens to Zechariah. And this is kind of uh, a truth we can pull out of this instance, but also as moving forward in the, in the coming weeks, that God comes to ordinary people in ordinary circumstances. That in the midst of our ordinary faithfulness in life, God meets us, meets Zechariah, and want to lean in there. But we read on in verse 11. Angel of the Lord appears. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." And Zechariah replied, he asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So Zechariah meets with a messenger of the Lord, an angel, and he shows up and he, he, says, he says effectively two things 
Zechariah has been longing for, one, you're, you're going to have a kid. You spent your whole life waiting for a kid, and you're finally going to be able to have one. And I'll just pause here just for a moment. That's some of your story. You're still in that waiting. You've longed to have a kid your whole life, and maybe you're, you're, you're not able to. This was Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. And God met them in it. But not only that, the expectation for Messiah to come is going to happen in his lifetime. The son you're going to have, you're going to raise him and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. This is the messian, this is messianic language. He's going to be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. So you're going to have a kid, which you've been longing for your heart, entire life, and the Messiah is going to come and your son's going to help usher him in, which is you've been waiting for not just your entire life, but the lives of generations before you. These two promises are going to come true. Your expectations, your longings are going to come true. Think about, maybe from last week, but but if you weren't here last week, what are your deepest longings and expectations? What have you been waiting for in this season of life? What are your top two things? Imagine that in the same moment that God meets you and says, these things are going to come true. That's what happens to Zechariah. And you know, maybe I'm just prideful or arrogant, but like, I, I think my responsibility Heck yeah, like that's amazing. Like I'd be hooting and hollering and celebrating, but this is incredible, like just celebration. But that's not Zechariah's immediate response. This is what he says. How can I be sure of this? How can I be sure of this? The message uh, version maybe reframes it a bit to help us understand his posture. He, do you expect me to believe this? Do you really expect me to believe this? And it's in that moment of of questioning and doubt that Gabriel responds, you will now be silent until this comes to fruition because you did not believe my words. Zechariah has a response, an unexpected response of doubt, of questioning, of doubting the good news, putting him in a place of doubt, And ultimately, in a place of discipline from God, you are going to be silent until this comes to pass. And that's where we're going to really spend the rest of our morning uh, here together this morning with this idea of doubt, of of waiting, of of unexpected times in life where we, God shows up, but it, it doesn't go the way we expect. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to have a helpful biblical understanding of doubt. So before we dive in more to Zechariah's doubt, what what was behind that? Why was he questioning? And then what that has to do with us? I want to just set aside a brief uh, few minutes to talk about what is, is doubt for us who want to follow Jesus, who want to be his apprentices, to walk in his way. If we're going to be people of faith, we need to understand what doubt is. And so the first thing I want to say to all of us in this room, which is not necessarily a common thing in in churches uh, all over the place, but doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. Doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. Os Guinness says this, that doubt is not the same as unbelief. It's a matter of truth, trust, and trustworthiness. There is no believing without some doubting. All the New Testament words for doubt have some sense of 
doubleness, of, of being torn between two things. Tim Keller says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. You see, if we are following Jesus, doubts will be a companion on the journey. We will have questions. We will have doubts. We will have moments where like Zechariah, we ask God, do you really expect me to believe that? It's part of the journey. And doubt is something we see all throughout scripture. There's plenty of examples. I, I don't have much time to go super deep, but here's just a few that, that, that I think uh, draw out God's heart and Jesus' heart towards uh, doubting. The, probably one of those famous ones is, is, is what's uh, poor Thomas. He gets always, uh, he, he's called Doubting Thomas. He's just known as Doubting Thomas throughout history. But um, the resurrection happens and, and, and Thomas, he's one of the apostles. He hears about it, but he doubts. He's like, that, that, I, I don't believe that. And Jesus shows up, and, and finally, this is in the Gospel of John, he shows up, and, and Jesus does not condemn his doubt, but he has compassion on him. He says, look at the wound in my side, and then the wounds in my hand, and touch them. Not condemnation, but compassion. A verse in, in Matthew 28, the verse before one of the, uh, the, the, one of the greatest commands of Jesus, the great commission, go and make disciples, in that the verse before it says that, that they went up with Jesus, and some of the disciples doubted. They were literally walking with the resurrected Jesus and they were, they had doubts. The book of Jude commands the people of God to have mercy on those who doubt. To have mercy on those who doubt. And so our, our posture towards doubt, towards questions, toward those who are questioning, those who are doubting is to have mercy, to have compassion, to walk with them. If you've never experienced deep doubt, and your call is to walk with others. And if you are in deep doubt, then you are in good company. You see, doubt is not something that is a sin in and of itself. It's not evil or bad, though. It, it can become dangerous if unchecked. You see, sometimes doubt is, is, there's two ways we can take it. We need to ask, is, is doubt, are questions the destination or the direction? Is doubt the end of the journey or is it part of the journey? Is doubt an invitation or an ending? See, if we see doubt as an invitation and a part of the journey, then it's ultimately an invitation into transformation, as we'll see in a bit. I love uh, Tyler Statton's definition of doubt. He says that doubt is an event in the world that conflicts with the story we believe. An event in a world that conflicts with the story we believe that that we, we have these internal stories we tell ourselves that our faith, is, and when something happens that contradicts that, we doubt. We have questions in good and bad ways. That's what doubt is. And the truth is doubt doesn't have to always be these big, big things. It, it doesn't have to be intellectual. It's something, anything that makes us kind of reconsider our lives, gives us pause. Wow, that's not what I expected could be the seeds of some questions and doubt. The outcome of doubt, though, fundamentally is rooted, are we going to trust? Are we going to trust? And so I want to pause here. I've kind of already started laying these seeds, but I want to pause to acknowledge those among us who, who maybe have been in the church a long time, and maybe you've, been, you've received narratives from certain churches, church streams, where doubt is a sin, and you're not allowed to ask questions. 
And I just want to say that that is not the way of Jesus. If you have doubts, Jesus is with you. Jesus is near to you. The church needs to walk with you. You are in a good place. And, and, and we, I was talking to Eric, and, and, and our, we want to be a place here at first where doubts are welcome, that doubts are, 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 you can ask your questions and you will not be judged nor condemned by us as, as a staff, as a community, that we are a, a safe place to question, to wrestle with God. That is our heart. That is our, our goal that is who we want to be as a church. And that's, you know, for some of you who, who have a hard time making space for doubt, like, lean in. We want and will be, we commit to be a, a place for doubters, for questioners, a safe space to wrestle with God. See, Jesus is not afraid of your doubt. He's not intimidated by your doubt. Your doubt is not unexpected to him. It's part of the journey. And so with that in mind, I want to spend the next few minutes kind of unpacking Zechariah's doubt. What might have been going through his mind? We don't really have a ton of details in the text. He asks the question and Gabriel says that's doubt. But what might be going through his mind? So we're going to look at four different kinds of, of doubt questions that Zechariah may have been asking in that moment and in the moments following. And we're going to see if, where we can see ourselves in that. So I'm going, to, I'm going to give four different examples and I want you to be reflecting Submitting to the text, submitting to Jesus in this moment, to the spirit, where do you resonate with these doubts? Does that sound good? I want you to be vulnerable with yourself and with God this morning. And so the first kind of doubt Zechariah may have been having is what I'm going to call intellectual doubt. Intellectual doubt. This is the kind of that God can't possibly do this. It's the kind of doubt where it has a hard time with impossible things, with, with miraculous things. You know, Zechariah was, was really old. He knew, I ain't giving anyone a kid anymore. And my wife isn't going to be bearing a kid anymore. He knew that reality. We know that reality. So maybe he was like, how is this possible? I, 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 don't, I don't know if I truly believe like, that God could do this in my life. And let, let's be honest, we, we've probably all had these, these moments. Maybe we come across these texts of scripture. It's like, that is a really crazy story that I don't know if I believe happened. If you don't read scripture and be like, that's crazy, I, I don't know if I can believe that, then I don't know if you're being completely honest with the text. Because there's some crazy things in there. And so when we see these miraculous kind of things happen, like, God, I don't, I, how could you have done that? How could you do that in my life? And so for those of us who, who wrestle with intellectual doubts of, you know, whether it's reconciling science and faith or other kinds of, of things, the invitation is to lean in. Is that one of your struggles with doubt? This, it's been one of mine. Of the four, there are two that have primarily been mine. This is one of, one of them. I've shared this before. I'll, I'll share just a, a snippet uh, again. But, but starting in 2015, I was launched. I graduated Bible college. And then I was like, let's just question everything that I ever knew about faith. <laughs> I'm going to get married and then just like, whoa, what's faith? I don't even know. And so for a couple of years, just wrestling with God about what is true and, and are you, like, what is going on and how do I trust scripture? All these kinds of things. That is a, a foundational part of, of, of who I am today the journey that I've been on, and I'm still on that journey. 
And so if you wrestle with questions about Scripture, doubts about certain passages, whatever it might be about Scripture or the Christian life or why do Christians, why are they terrible people and they don't actually follow Jesus and cause all these things and did the Crusades and, and, and justified all these, these... I get it. I've been there. I'm still there. And if that's you, just come find me after service, email me. I would absolutely love to just walk with you to, to listen in the midst of those doubts and questions. And if you don't struggle with that, how can you make space to listen to those who do? To seek to understand, to not necessarily provide answers, but to be with them in the midst of it. Uh, uh, intellectual doubt, that's the first one. The second one, the reality is doubt is not always, even often intellectual, it's usually personal. And so the second kind of, kind of doubt that Zechariah may, may have been having in these moments was practical doubt that I can't do this. I'm old. I don't have the capability to raise a son anymore. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the energy. I literally cannot do this. He may have been thinking there's a ton of pressure to raise a son to prepare the way for the Messiah. I just can't, that's, that's too big of a task, practically. I just can't imagine myself doing that. I don't have the time or the resources to do that. I have reasonable reasons that I, this, isn't, this is not going to be me. I can't, I can't do this, God. And so are you a practical doubter? Do you come up with reasonable reasons why this is not going to happen? Making oftentimes excuses. Manifest in doubt. I know there's people out there, many of us in this room, who have practical doubts. Lean in. You're in good company. The third kind of doubt that Zechariah may have been uh, having is what I'm going to call shaming doubt. Shaming doubt is the idea of I am not good enough to do this. How could you be asking me to do this, God? I who am I to carry out this task? God, God can't use me. I, I'm not good enough. I'm past my prime. I'm too old. God doesn't want me to do this task. There's no way that I'm good enough to raise a son to prepare the way for the Messiah. So again, I just want to pause and just say, many of us are parents in this room, myself included now, and part of parenting is feeling completely inadequate and like you don't know what you're doing. Right? Yeah, I mean, I'm four, I'm four months into it and that's pretty much my existence right now. And I know like you get the hang of it and a new thing, something changes. And... But what you're doing as a parent matters. Discipling your kids matters. Raising your kids to follow Jesus matters. And even though you might not believe in yourself, God believes in you. And he will give you what you need to raise your children. And for those of us uh, without children in this room, the invitation is to, to help raise in the family of God, to help raise other disciples, to serve maybe in the back with the students or the kids. That we're one big family, we're all brothers and sisters, and so we all have a responsibility to be spiritual mothers and fathers. But parents, you, you matter. And uh, I understand the inadequacy. Lean in. 
Those of you who maybe are a little bit more seasoned, older in this room, you matter. You matter. You might be getting to the age where you're like, I don't know if my story matters. I don't know what I have to offer anymore. I don't know if young people want to listen to my stories or listen to my wisdom. I don't know if I have any wisdom to offer. You matter to both God and to this community. Your voice matters. You have things to offer. You have lived in a certain way. You have wisdom and experiences to share with those who are much younger in the faith and much younger just as humans. So I just want to speak that over you. You matter. We want you here. We encourage you to connect. So maybe step outside your comfort zone and to offer that to those of us who are younger in our faith and in our life. You see, God, you know, believes, believe it or not, in us. This issue of inadequacy and unworthiness, like it, 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 it's like a plague that just gets on our soul and it makes us passive. And we're not going to do anything because we just don't believe God would actually believe in us. But he believed in us so much that he died for us, that he, he says that we are worth it. And the cross proves that. And so whether you feel inadequate, feel like you're not good enough, God says that you are. And he wants to partner and participate with you in his kingdom work. So lean in. But I wonder how many of you in this room struggle with shameful doubt. And the last kind of doubt, the fourth kind of doubt that Zechariah, Zechariah may have been having is, is what I'm calling relational doubt. Relational doubt. The, the idea God wouldn't do this. God wouldn't do this. And let me explain this because this is a really deep, hard kind of doubt. God wouldn't do this. He wouldn't make me wait for decades. He wouldn't allow me to suffer, me and my wife to suffer this long without having a kid. It's the kind of doubt that questions God's character, questions God's goodness. It's the doubt that wrestles with suffering, wrestles with, with evil in this world, both human and natural evil. Uh, you know, the tornadoes that just went through Nashville. God, why? You're a good God, but, but a bunch of people got killed by a tornado. How could you allow that? This is relational doubt. This is a doubt that, that wrestles. And this is the second kind of doubt that really just plagues me regularly. Still, God, how could you? Why is this the case? Why have you not stepped in? And if you are a relational doubter, questioning or wrestling with the character of God, the love of God, you are in good company. These are the doubts that we see throughout scripture, articulated one place, Jeremiah, he says, he says literally, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? God, you are good, but everything around me is terrible, and you are allowing all of these things. Why? I would, I'm going to contend with you on that. Jeremiah is doubting God's character in one sense and wrestling with God in another. So if you wrestle with that kind of doubt, relational doubt, questioning God's goodness, you're not alone. You're in good company. 
lean in. And so which, which ones of these are you? Which of the four are you? Or which one or two do you grab? I, I can almost guarantee that all of us in this room can say, yep, that's me. And maybe you're feeling other kinds of doubt. This is not this is just a, an exercise, but which one are you? Write it down. Name it so that you can submit it to God and we can move forward trusting God with what's to come. Because the reality is that the doubt is not the end of, of the journey. It's a direction, not the destination. It's an invitation, not an end. And this is not the end of Zechariah's story. You see, for nine months, Zechariah could not speak under the discipline of Gabriel and of God because of his doubt. And that, you know, that might, again, for some of us, maybe that's that relation to God. Why would you, why would you give some, stop him from speaking? That doesn't make sense. That's not fair. But it's in those nine months that something happens to Zechariah. You know, the, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, true sons and daughters at all. You see, God saw Zechariah as a son. And he knew the doubts in his heart. And he knew what Zechariah needed for those nine months was to be quiet, to listen, to wrestle, to wait. And that's what many of us also need when we come face to face with our doubt. We're waiting for God to act, waiting for God to break in, waiting for the season to end. Some of you, are in a season of doubt and waiting because of choices you've made, sins you've committed. Others are in a season of doubt and waiting because of sins that other people have made and committed against you. No matter what season you're in and the reason for it, God's invitation in the midst of doubt is wrestling in the waiting. You see, the very nation of Israel was defined by this identity of wrestling. You know, Jacob was, was one of the patriarchs of the faith, and, and he, his name was, was Jake, Jacob. And he wrestled with God throughout the night. He said, Lord, bless me. I'm not going to stop until you bless me. And by the end of the night, God, you know, tweaks his hip because doubt never leaves us. Waiting never leaves us. Wrestling and suffering never leaves us without a, a scar. And he renames Jacob Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. And the nation of Israel is born out of that reality that they are a nation of people and we are the continuation of that story. The people who wrestle with God, no matter what, in the waiting, in the doubt, in the expectation, in the longing. It's in the waiting, as we learned last week, that God does the work. When you're waiting, you're not doing nothing. 
You're doing the most important thing there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. If you can't be still and wait, you can't become what God created you to be. And there's almost nothing that makes you wait more than doubt and questions and wrestling. You see, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty and control. I'm going to say that again. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty and control. Are you willing to let go of control in your life? Are you willing to let go of certainty? On the other side of wrestling, on the other side of of doubt and discipline is, is transformation and trust in the person and relationship of God in Christ. You see, that was not the end of Zechariah's story. He had, he had a nine-month period of, of being born again in a sense. And Elizabeth came and, and, and uh, finally gave birth. They named him John, and immediately Zechariah's mouth was open. He could speak again, and this is the song that he sings in Luke 1. Praise be to the Lord the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show us mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, John, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give him, his people, the knowledge of salvation through their forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. These are the, the song of Zechariah after his season of waiting and doubt. Are you going to be the kind of person that wrestles in the doubt to become the kind of person who will sing the praises of God on the other side and to walk faithful in the middle? See, ultimately for apprentices of Jesus, for those who, if you want to follow Jesus, doubt is an invitation to a journey with him. It's an invitation to relationship, to walk with the one who came and walked with us. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you to, to, to name your doubt, to submit it to God, and to wait on him for the unexpected. Trusting that God will work and move if we're willing to walk with him, no matter where we're at. And again, one more word for those who, you may not be in a deep season of doubt. We are the community, the body of Christ. We are called to walk with one another in the midst of anything that comes. The journey is not an individual journey. We are all called to walk together with Jesus, whatever is to come. 
And so we're gonna transition now to a time of communion. And uh, it's just a time for those who, who wanna follow Jesus, who claim his, his Lord and Savior and Rabbi and Master and Teacher, who wanna walk with him in this thing called faith. And you know, the only way that doubt is destructive is, is, is when you do it alone. When you don't bring it to the community and you don't bring it to God. And communion is a reminder that we are never alone. That God is with us, especially in the season of Christmas, that God is always entering into our state, our condition, our life, our expectations, our doubts. He is always with us. And you are not alone in your questions and doubts whatever you're facing. And so for the next few minutes, uh, I encourage you to, uh, the, the elements are in the entrances, but to, as you take the bread, which represents God's broken body, Jesus' broken body for us, and the juice that represents his shed blood for our freedom and forgiveness, that he wanted to be with us, that he is with us, that you are never alone in whatever you're facing. Reflect on that. Rest in that, trust in that, as we continue to worship this morning through communion.